It's amazing. I don't even feel like I'm a guest. Uh, I feel like this is family. With the one exception, this pulpit is not designed for midgets. Have you noticed that? I feel like, hi, I'm going to talk to you. you know, so uh, anyway, you can at least see the best part of me. No, the best part. I don't know where the best part of me is. I've given up on trying to find the best part of me a long time ago. Um, you know, I just, I just have to say, uh, you guys are blessed. I, the staff you have here with Pastor Rob, who is a man of God, a man of passion, and probably, I don't know many guys that I would say has a more sincere heart than Rob. I mean, he loves Christ, he loves his church, he loves this country, and he really wants to see God glorified. And so he and I have been friends, and Brett, uh, Brett is the guy I always wanted to steal and have on staff, but uh, didn't quite be able to do that ethically, so we left him here, and uh, Brett has been a great help to Rob, and uh, just all of the guys on staff here are amazing. Just a little note on us, uh, my, my life has, my goodness, changed um, I mean, in the last six months, I am in a completely different place than I was for 33 years. You know, in June of 1979, we had our first meeting as the Evangelical Free Church of the Kanea Valley. Uh, two days later, Connie gave birth to our second child. Now, if you want to know the definition of insanity... It's starting a church when your wife is due with your second child, and you've got someone who's a year and a half old. Well, we, we started there, and for 33 years, God gave us just a great ministry here in the valley. He gave us great friendships with the pastors. January 31st was our last day there, and then February 18th, Connie and I got on a, a plane to Hong Kong, and then ultimately we went into mainland China. And we've been spending the last four months of our lives there. Uh, and our mission there, th- this is so amazing. We were working with the pastor who is the pastor of a church of a million and a half people. And they are broken into house churches all over China. And these folks, and, and I don't mean this to be derogatory to us, but it's just their understanding... Their understanding is the United States has stopped taking the Great Commission to the world. That the the United States is failing its responsibility of bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. So they've taken it on themselves. Even though they are under the gun from the government. I mean, when we were there, there were three churches that were shut down. There were six people who were arrested. So they are under the gun from their government, but they are passionate about taking the gospel around the world. So our mission was to go work with the leaders of this church and those who are getting ready to be sent out uh, to equip them, to encourage them, to train them, and to give them the skills they need as they go out. So these, these young disciples, they're all in their 20s. They're going out to places like uh, the Sudan, to Syria, uh, they're forming a 20-person uh, a, a team to go to Tehran. Uh, they're going to Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're going to places where many of the places, if they get caught, it's the death penalty for them. 
And they are absolutely fearless in sharing their faith. And, and if you want to ever understand a humbling experience, go teach people like this. Because for me, I was feeling like, uh, I think we should reverse this. I think you should be the teacher and I should be the student. Because you guys, the pastor I worked with had spent seven years in prison. Uh, the other pastor that I didn't get to work with, but Connie got to meet, uh, he had spent a number of years in prison, had had every bone in his leg broken, both legs broken through torture. Um, uh, an angel came to him, told him it was time to get up and go out of prison. His legs were instantly healed. He walked, I mean, it was like Peter. He walked out of prison with all the guards asleep. Uh, and he can't be in China. He's in exile now, but he is continuing the work from outside of the country. I mean, this is crazy what is going on with these people. I mean, they are on the cutting edge of the Great Commission. And so their mission, uh, their group is called Back to Jerusalem because what they want to do is they want to go along the Silk Road. Are you familiar with the Silk Road in history? They want to go along the Silk Road, which goes through the 1040 window, which is all of the Muslim countries, and they want to take the gospel all the way back to Jerusalem. So that's what they're doing. And that's who we had the privilege to work with. And, and I have to tell you, when you're teaching a group like this, you become very careful about what you say. Because when you say something, they write it down. And for them, the gap between what they know God says and their obedience is like zero. I mean, if they hear what God says, they say, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to do then. And they, their obedience level and their joy is just amazing. So um, I want to give a, a little bit of a shameless plug. Over the next three weeks, Connie and I are having desserts at our house. And if we can't put the slide, the pictures on the Internet because it puts the Chinese church in danger because the Chinese government is monitoring all of that stuff. So we're, we, we want to show you the pictures, though, of what God did in that. So if you, any of you would like to come over to our house, just talk to Connie, and, and she'll give you all the dates. We would just love to, to share with you. I mean, I think everybody we've shared it with so far has just been, wow, I'm ready to grow in my faith. I mean, it's, it's a very inspiring group. So we're going to be doing that in July. Right now, I want to take us to Psalm 8. As I said, you know, my life has undergone upheaval, and I don't know if you can identify with this, but, but when you've done something for 33 or 34 years, you know how that kind of becomes a part of your identity? And then when one day you were doing it, and the next day you're not, in a sense, wow, who am I? Well, for 33 years, I introduced myself as pastor of the bridge. You know, I'm still going through Facebook and LinkedIn and Google Plus to change all of my profiles because, oh, I'm not that anymore. That's not who I am. And I want to tell you something really exciting. And this is where Psalm 8 is more than a Bible study. And I, I pray that to you, this is going to be more than a Bible study tonight. To me, Psalm 8 is absolutely foundational to understanding the two most important things in the universe. Number one, who God is. And number two, who you are. And if you understand those two things, 
you have the potential to have a life that can have joy even when a lot of things of this world are taken away from you. You have the potential to bring worship to God whether things are good or whether things are bad. You have the potential to say with David, God is my refuge and strength in him. Will I trust? And you know what's cool, you guys? This stuff really works. It's fun when for years you're teaching other people and then you go through it and you're working to apply it and you say, it works. It really works. And we're going to see in Psalm 8 what God has to say to us. And I want us to, if we could just stand in reverence for God's word, I'd like to read uh, Psalm 8 to you. Paul says, give heed to the public reading of scripture. And I think we need to honor that. Let's, uh, if you could just follow along with me, I'll read. That way we won't get all mixed up with the different um, uh, versions. I'm reading from the English Standard Bible. Paul, or David says, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, I pray that as we go through this psalm that you would open our hearts to see you in a greater sense of your glory. I know we can't comprehend you, God. You are infinite. But may this new revelation of who you are change our perspectives even today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. David begins with an amazing address. Uh, you know, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's really an unfortunate translation. The first word for Lord is Yahweh or Jehovah. God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So literally, it's, O Yahweh, O Jehovah. And, and if, as you realize in Psalm 8, God is, uh, David is actually speaking to God. You see that, right? And, and so probably the best way to understand verse 1 would be to understand it. O Yahweh, you who rule all things. You who are the governor of all. You who are the Lord of all. How majestic. How powerful. How glorious is your name in all the earth. And so David begins and ends the psalm with this declaration. And, and what he's doing, he's setting his perspective on who God is. 
And as we go a little further into the psalm, it's going to be really clear that David wrote this psalm most likely as a shepherd when he was sitting outdoors in the middle of the night. Amazing what he has to say. He goes on in verse 2 to say something that's a little tough to understand. He says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The idea of this, David is saying that those who praise you are going to be considered by this world to be babies and infants. And I just want to give you a little perspective on that. Let's, uh, I'm, I think I have them on the screen. Matthew chapter one, 21, verses 15 and 16. It says, but when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that they did, that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So I don't know if you could imagine this, but little kids are running around crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees are all harumph, harumph. You know, I don't know if you grew up in a real formal church, but I always grew up, whenever I made any noise, everybody, shh, you're in God's house. And I always wonder, what, is he sleeping or something? Are you afraid I'm going to wake him up? I mean, it was like, no, no smiling, no fun, no joy. You're in the house of God. You know, it's kind of, kind of that weirdness to it. And, and I could just imagine... Because those guys who always told me that I always pictured them as Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus is looking at this scene. And the Pharisees are all going, harumph, harumph, harumph. Uh, you know, hey, tell these kids to shut up. You know, don't, don't you realize this is an important scene? And listen to what Jesus said. They were indignant and they said to him, do you, do you hear what these little kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read... Uh, And he quotes Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Let me read to you another one. Matthew 11, 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Again, a Psalm 8 kind of reference. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Matthew 19, 13, and 14. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. A rebuke is a really strong word, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, hey, let's be careful. It's, he, he, they're kind of getting down on him. And Jesus says, hey, I want these kids to come to me because of such is the kingdom of heaven. People of God, there's a principle here. Praise comes from the heart of a child. And and you know the wonderful thing about children is they have this sense of awe about them. And, And I hope when it comes to God, we never lose that sense of awe. One of the fun things in China, we were teaching them a lot of English songs and it was fun because my son and his children had been there the year before we got there. And one of their favorite songs was what a little two-year-old taught them. I don't know if you've ever heard it. My God is so great, so strong, is so mighty. There's nothing my God can do. And they would sing that all the time. They loved that song of, ah, oh, 
My God is so great. He's so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Have you, have you ever been embarrassed by your kids when you're all frustrated about something, you're looking for something, and, and, and your child says, well, why don't we pray about it? Uh, well, I was just getting to that, you know. Uh, their, their knee-jerk response is to trust. And here in Psalm 8, David is saying, you know what, God? I know how this works. It's out of the mouths of infants and babes, out of the heart that is childlike. That's where the praise is going to come from that is actually going to bring an end to the enemies of God. A couple of other scriptures I want you to, to write down if you're taking notes, and I do hope you're taking notes. Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. You know, we look at the wrath of God, and let me just read verses 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress or hold down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So that in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They begin to worship creation rather than the creator. And, you know, all you have to do is go to a na- any National Geographic program, right? And they're saying, you know, it's amazing how, how evolution has so perfectly engineered this, this particular adaptation. And they actually give praise to an irrational force called evolution, They are worshiping the creation rather than worshiping the creator. And all the way through, you'll see this time and time again, whether it's in the New Age Gaia worship or whether it's the evolutionary process or people talking about the Big Bang and again, giving praise to a force that they don't understand. There's one other passage, and this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, and I we don't have time now, but I would really encourage you to take time to read these. Because what, what 1 Corinthians 1 says is that there is an antagonism between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And the wisdom, and what Paul says is the wisdom of this world is never going to figure its way to God. We're not, we're not going to win people to God by arguing with them on an intellectual basis. Because the problem isn't intellectual. The problem is spiritual. They don't want a God to whom they're accountable. And that's why they've concocted theories that, to me, require more faith than I could ever imagine. I I couldn't have enough faith to believe in evolution. I mean, you know, you talk about having to have enormous faith. 
rather than to believe in an intelligent, creative God. So David goes on in verse 3. And he does what, I don't know if you've done this, but I've done this. You know, you're out in the night and you're looking at the stars. And he says, when I look at your, hev- at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Now, if you have an older version, it says your handiwork. But literally, David is viewing the creation of the universe as the work of God's fingers. He says, the moon and the stars, this is how we know it's at night, by the way, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I know you guys have all seen these slides, but I just want to show you some of the, some of the slides. This is a, it's called a globula, which is a, a gathering of stars. And have you guys ever been out in the desert to see the, the, the stars? I mean, it's amazing how much our light pollution just completely blows our ability to see anything away. And if you could imagine David in those days when there was nothing even leaking out there, I mean, that's what he could look at. Let's go to the next slide. This is a slide of a galaxy with the, with the uh, pretty typical galaxy with the spiral arms going out. And the next one is a, actually a a graphic representation of the Milky Way galaxy, which is the galaxy that we live in. Now, scientists with the Hubble telescope have, have concluded, or right now their best estimate, is that there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. In, in just our solar system, or not solar system, our galaxy right here, 400 billion stars. And that the Milky Way galaxy is one of 170 billion galaxies. And this is just what we can see. Scientists are fully anticipating that as our technology grows, the bubble of the universe is going to expand even more. And I I know you guys have seen this, but I I just love this. I just want to show you some of the comparisons about where we fit into the grand scheme of things. Let's go to the next slide. Now, this one actually makes me feel pretty good. Okay. These are the planets in our little solar system. Not our galaxy, just our little solar system. You know, and so Pluto, little kid, you know, Mercury, Mars. I mean, we're... We're actually in pretty good shape there. You know, you're feeling, hey, we're, we're pretty impressive, our earth. And, and then you put the earth next to the sun. And there we are. That's, that's a representation of where our earth slots in with the sun. And then you're, you're pretty impressed with the sun. But then you begin to compare the sun to other stars. Now, the sun is on the left. And Sirius and Pollux and Arcturus, which is one of the larger stars in our galaxy, is, is uh, and I can't even say one of the larger. That's we're going to see in a minute that is not even one of the larger. But there's the sun. And remember the earth in relationship to the sun. Okay, let's go back. Can we go back a slide? Okay, so you can see the earth in relationship to the sun, right? Now let's go to the next one. And now you see the sun in relationship to Arcturus. Let's go to the next one. And this, 
This is, this is pronounced Betelgeuse. That's the name of that star. And you, the little pinpoint over there is the sun. You guys, if, if you begin to look at this universe, I mean, you come to the conclusion that, that scientists, we're nothing. We're a little piece of navel lint on a little solar system that is, you know, that is not even a big enough thing to be counted as one of the bigger stars. That uh, star, Betelgeuse, by the way, if that were the center of our solar system, it would actually encompass the Earth. In other words, we're 93 million miles away from Earth. That star is big enough that we would actually be inside of the star if it were in our solar system. How great is our God? And, and you start thinking about this, and, and the God we worship... The God we worship is the God who created him. And so David is looking at the stars, and we have technology that David didn't have to even look at, and see things in greater detail than David could have ever seen. And, and again, when you start thinking about that, you say, wow. When I consider the stars, the moon, and all of the things that you've made, who am I? that you should even think about me. I mean, God, the difference between... This is where there's a wonderful word, and I don't know if you've heard it. It's a a theological term. It's the term transcendent. Are you familiar with that word? The word transcendent simply means that there's a big difference between you and God. Okay? And I mean a really big difference. He is not a part of creation, he is transcendent or above or removed from creation. And we are part of his creation. Now, there's one thing we need to go into because it's very important to understand this psalm. Who is David talking about when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? Now, if you know your Bible, you know, all oh, the son of man refers to Messiah. And what makes this even a little bit more confusing is the fact that Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8, actually quotes Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus Christ. But I want to suggest to you that in David's mind, he was not thinking of Messiah right now. He was thinking of mankind, and I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But, as is true in so many of the Old Testament passages, there is a truth and then there is a greater truth that sits on top of that truth. The truth that David is talking about in Psalm 8 is that he's simply saying, God, I can't believe that you take note of us. I can't believe that you care for us. And David's going to go on in just a minute to say some extraordinary things. But you know what? There is, just like Adam was a representative of the fallen race. Jesus Christ is now the representative of the redeemed race. And so what applies to us applies in an infinitely more wonderful way to Jesus Christ. 
So uh, what I want you to understand, and I don't want you to be offended, I'm not saying this doesn't apply to Jesus Christ. It does. And Hebrews 2 explicitly makes that clear. But I want you to see, and we're going to see from the Old Testament, that this also applies to us, even in the marvelous things that he says about us. All right. So let's go on. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, David's asking the question. When I consider the universe, I go, man, how can a God like you be concerned about a person like me? Here's one of the huge kickers. What I want you to begin to see is your identity, your value, your worth, your purpose as a human being never comes from what you do or what you own or who you're with. It only can come from your creator. And David is going to say this. David is going to say, if, if I'm left to my own reason, my conclusion is a God like this could never care about a person like me. But now let's read verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. Now you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. My Bible says angels. And what's even crazier is Hebrews chapter 2 says angels. Now let me give you a little help on this. And, and in, in interpreting scripture, this gets a little interesting. A lot of times when New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, they will quote what is called the Septuagint version, which is a version of the Old Testament that was translated from Hebrew to Greek in about 100 B.C. And that's what happens exactly here. The Septuagint translated this angels because they didn't like the idea of, of God making man a little lower than himself. And we'll explain exactly what that means in just a minute. The Hebrew word here is Elohim. Elohim, not one time in the Old Testament, is, is, refers to angels. It always either refers to the one true God. Why is it plural, Elohim? Because he is three in one. He is, he is a God who is greater than just one person. Or Elohim can refer to false deities who are claiming to be God. Okay? But here it's obviously not that. And so I believe with all my heart that David is saying that God has created us a little lower than God. Now, why would I say such a ridiculous thing? Okay, let's go, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. By the way, folks, if you don't know Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you will never understand the Bible. I mean that. Every, everything in the Bible grows out of an accurate understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I honestly believe that the, the beginning of the gospel should always be Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Because if God isn't the creator of the heavens and earth, who cares who Jesus is? If I don't have a creator to whom I'm accountable, 
I, I, I'm on my own now. And so this is very important. Now, in Genesis 1, it, it's so cool. All through, and I want to I give you the verses. In, in verses uh, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24, it says, and God, what's the word? Said. Yeah. All of the universe... God spoke into existence. Do you guys realize the universe wasn't even hard for God? You want to know what was hard? Was saving us. And if if that sounds a little blasphemous, I, I want to share something with you that's really cool. Psalm 8 says, The heavens show forth the finger work of God. Isaiah 40 says that to save us, the Lord bared his arm. So God exercised more of his power and holiness and majesty and glory to save us than he did to create the immense universe. All right. Now we get to Genesis 1, and 27, the creation of us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, created a little lower than God. We are the only beings in the universe that are said to be created in the image of God. Angels, not created in the image of God. We're not made lower than the angels. We're made a little lower than God himself. And let them have dominion. That means let them rule. Over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now, there's, there's some beautiful things here. Number one, God is neither male nor female. He is, again, transcendent from any sexual identity. And it's only as male and female that we truly reflect the image of God. There are parts of God that seem distinctly masculine. He is, as our father, he disciplines us, does all of those things. But you know what? One of my favorite passages is where Jesus said, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings as a hen does her chicks. That's, that's a female hen with that motherly protective instinct there. Now, hold your finger in Genesis. And I, I should have told you to do this, but go back to Psalm 8. And we've read Genesis 1. Now let's read verses 5 and, and 6 again. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So Psalm 8 is simply reflecting the truth of Genesis 1.26, of being created in the image of God, and God created us to rule this earth. And so we're created in the image of God. We are created as, as being in the image of God to rule. Now, I want to take you to Ch- Genesis 2.7. This, this gets really exciting to me. You know, everybody loves to talk about Flipper being so smart. And I, I'm, you know, I think porpoises are really smart. You know, they can jump and, and swim better than I can. Really smart. But God smoke, spoke 
flipper into existence. God said, let there be flipper, and there's flipper. God said, let there be whales, and God, God said, let there, be, let there be chimpanzees, really smart animals, and let there be apes, and, and you know, all of these shows, they love to talk about how close animals are to man. Oh, man, we're just, we're just one little teeny step removed from those animals. They are so full of it, it's pathetic. The difference in every measurement is huge. And even in the way that we were created. When it comes to creating man. God gets down on his knees. And he begins to form Adam's body from the dust of the ground. God is having a hands-on approach to the creation of man. And when he's finished, there is this body that is lying there. But it's lifeless. And now God bends down and in a face-to-face gesture, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. God breathes his own life into man. And man becomes a living soul. You guys, I don't think it is a stretch at all to say that from Genesis 2-7 alone, we were created for intimacy with God. We were created so that apart from that intimacy with God, we are broken. We are empty. We are, the, the, the life and value and dignity and purpose of who we are has been sucked right out of us. But this is what God created us for. Now, as we go to Genesis 2.18, the first thing in all the universe that God said was not good, it is not good for man to be alone. So what, what did God do? Again, look at the intimacy God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He took the rib, and from the rib, he fashioned him into a woman. And God personally brings the woman to man. Not only were we created for intimacy with God, we were created for intimacy with each other. So Psalm 8, and I want you to stay here for just a minute. In Psalm 8, David says, when I look at the universe, I go, how could a God like this care about someone like me? But when you look at God's revelation in his word, you go, he does care about me. In fact, he created me to experience his love and to return his love to him in worship, praise, service, and, and to glorify him with everything I am. Now, what happened? It's all in Genesis 3. Let's go to the next slide if we could. Sin, number one, destroyed our intimacy with God. Remember the story of Genesis 3? God comes walking in the garden, and the, the clear implication of Genesis 3 is this was God's normal pattern for every afternoon. Hey, I think I'll go take a walk with my two kids. You know, and he, he loved being with us. 
And what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They hid out of fear. So their intimacy with God was destroyed. Sin also damaged our intimacy with each other. Adam and Eve looked at each other and they realized they were naked. And so what did they do? They covered each other up. Or they covered themselves up. And I want you to think about something. This is really tragic. God wanted them to live in not just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, intellectual intimacy. In other words, two beings being completely open, honest, and intimate with each other. And sin damaged that. And boy, no matter where I go, I see people in marriages struggling to discover intimacy. Why? Because deep down inside, all of us carry shame. And that shame makes me want to have distance from you because I don't want you to see the real me because I know if you see the real me, you'll reject me. Sin distorted, but it did not destroy the image of God within us. Why do I say that? Because in Genesis 9, when God officially says the capital punishment, the taking of a man's life for murder is important, the reason he gives is that man was created in the image of God. So God still views man, even sinful fallen man, as being in his image, even though That image was distorted. And so rather than being stewards of this earth, man becomes an abuser and a consumer of this earth. Do you you notice that whenever man touches a part of the earth, it gets ugly? I mean, it's, it's... When I think of the most beautiful places on the earth, it's the parts of the earth that man has touched the least. And one of the things I'm excited about heaven, heaven is not going to be clouds and harps and wings. Heaven is going to be like this earth without man messing it up. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And so the image of God in us was distorted, but it was not destroyed. One more slide, and I want to share with you our hope. Let's let's go on to the hope. The hope, people, is that restoration is coming. I want to tell you something about the gospel. And I hope you're not offended by this. The gospel is not really about you. You know, I I often hear people say, well, if if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have died to save you. And I don't know. You know, maybe that's probably true. I don't know. But it's pointless. The point is, That the gospel is about the glory of God. And and the fact that you may be saved doesn't mean the gospel has done its work in you. What it indicates is that the gospel is doing its work in you. And I hope you're letting it continue to do its work in you because restoration is coming. Now, we've got to go to Romans 8 because it's too cool to ignore. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. 
Turn there real quick. You know, I'm used to the Chinese Christians who, they always beat me to the passage. Do you know, and you wonder why God is working in China. Their their, their, uh, uh, schedule in the morning, one hour time spent with God in, in his word, one hour in prayer alone. You know, seeking God, praying for the mission. Every morning, they begin with that schedule. And, and you wonder, why is God working through them so powerfully? Maybe prayer has something to do with that. I don't know. Maybe, just maybe. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Or nine, I'm gonna, actually going to start with verse 19. For the creation... Okay, this is what God created, this amazing six-day creation. And I believe it was six days. The reason I believe it was six days is God said it was six days. And when God says something, that's kind of good enough for me. Uh, you can call me a child. You can call me, oh, Steve, can't believe you believe in that, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I believe it with all my heart. And I believe it because God said it. And by the way, better be careful in not believing it because Jesus believed it. Jesus believed that it was six days. So this creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, I want you to see the picture here. The picture that Paul is painting is all of creation is waiting for our ultimate redemption, which is when Jesus comes again. That's the revealing of the sons of God. That's what that's talking about. So Flipper is out in the ocean. Come on, Jesus, come again, because I want your sons to be revealed. And it's all over. All creation is waiting eagerly. Why? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. You know, I always laugh at these movies that kind of glorify the beauty of creation. And, and, you know, do you remember The Lion King? The circle of life, you know, and how cool it was. Well, you know, the, the circle of life didn't work out too well for the antelope. You know, I mean, I mean, really, right now, if you look at creation, it's based on death, isn't it? That's not the way God created this universe. And it's not the way it's going to function when God brings things back to the way they should be. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, this, the creation had nothing to do with this. This is all about us sinning because we were in dominion over the earth. And when we sinned, guess what? When, when leaders do something wrong, who suffers? Everybody under the leader. Okay? So when we sinned, all of creation suffered because of our sin. It was subjected not, will, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying is one day the creation is going to share in our freedom. We, when we are revealed as children of God to this world because of Jesus coming again, the creation is going to be blessed by that. And not only, oh, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And I know Lama's classes and all the classes say childbirth doesn't hurt. 
And I always told Connie that when she was having our babies, you know. Hey, honey, this is easy. I didn't realize this was so easy. And uh, I actually didn't say that because I would have had uh, something in my skull. But. but he goes on and he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you ever feel like something's wrong with you when you're sad? It's actually an indication that you know you're not where you belong. We, do you realize we're not where we belong? Where we belong is coming in the future. Peter calls us pilgrims and aliens and sojourners. And so every so often I just go, this life stinks. And you know what? That's okay. Because the reality is, this life really does stink. But I got a better life coming. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So when you hear preachers saying on the, on the TV, hey, if you trust God, everything's going to be great. Oh, man, you'll make a lot of money. Things will be great. Oh, don't listen to them. Because by their way of thinking, the Chinese Christians that we worked with were really lousy Christians. Because they're all poor. They spend a lot of time in prison. And they suffer greatly for their faith. Wow, they must really be doing something wrong. No, they're doing something right. And so, don't listen to that stuff. It's wrong. Now, let's go on. For in hope, in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And, and I just want to tell you guys, part of Christian growth is not learning new things it's remembering what you already know, right? And part of this whole study, if there's one thing you could walk away from, God wants to permanently readjust your thinking. And in order for that to happen, you have to do a readjustment every day of your lives. Because we can all be sitting here saying, amen, isn't this great? This is cool. And then tomorrow morning we forget everything. Okay? Colossians 3, 3 through 4 uh, It simply says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is is revealed, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we've been created in glory and honor. And the hope is that we're going to return to that place of glory and honor. So all that God says about man was damaged by sin. But if you're a Christian, you're in the process of restoration. You're in the process of becoming who God created you to be all along. And then David closes Psalm 8, just like he he began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what are the practical implications of this? Let me give you a couple. Number one. How would your life change if every day you remembered that your God is the God we've just talked about in Psalm 8? 
Boy, would that change how you respond to trials? Would that change how you respond to shocks and disappointments and tragedies and all of the... I mean, if, if you can learn to remind yourself in the morning, my God is the God of Psalm 8. My God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. My God is the God who redeemed me. My God is the God who has me in process of being restored to what I was created to be all along. Number two. As you share with people. And I hope and pray that one thing that's going to happen in America, specifically in the Caneo Valley, is that Christians are going to be so overwhelmed with the good news of Jesus Christ that they can't keep their mouths shut. And I think Psalm 8 is a part of returning to that childlike sense of awe and wonder. My God is the creator of everything that I can do. All the stuff that the Hubble is looking at, my God created them. 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and he has named every one of them. Wow. And so as you're thinking about it, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but one of the things I, I encourage you to do is to take an evening and write out the good news. What is the good news that God has given to you that he wants you to share. You know, over and over again throughout his writing, Paul refers to my gospel. Didn't just call it the gospel. He called it my gospel. Well, have you made the gospel your gospel? And I, and I would love for you to, and if you're going to do that, start with Genesis 1. Start with God created the heavens and the earth. He created us in his image. He created us for relationship with him. And Genesis 3, man, we just, we blew it. And everything you see, it, it answers so many of the questions. Why is there evil in the world? There's evil in the world because man is running the show as God of his own life. That's why there's evil in the world. It's actually not that tough of a question. This world is what you get when people turn away from God. So what's the answer? Duh. Turn back to God. Number three. The world cannot give value. If your kids make the all-star team, that doesn't give you any value. If you're promoted to president of the company doesn't give you value if you if you buy a jaguar i'll say if you buy one for me maybe that would help no i'm just just kidding but if, if you buy a really cool car and you're driving around and everybody's going whoa that's a cool car that doesn't give you value and that's why john wrote to the christians and he said and and a literal translation of first john two fifteen is stop loving the world Stop trying to find your value and your dignity and your worth and your purpose in the things of this world. Only God can do that. And the final point, the thing I want you to know that, that's so exciting to me is, is we are in process 
you haven't received the gospel, you are receiving the gospel on a continuing basis, day by day. And as the gospel does its work in you, to a greater and greater extent, you're going to discover who God created you to be and what he wants you to do. And all of that grows out of Psalm 8, you guys. This is, this is an amazing psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. How glorious is your name. How powerful is your name in all the earth. So, Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be a Bible study. I pray that this would be something that, that changes our lives. And I just ask you in Jesus' name that you'd help us to see not only what you want us to see out of this passage, but how you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.